Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am back with super producer Alex. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, good. Well, uh, you know, we got an awesome interview today, but uh, with, with Robin Dreek, who is amazing. This but is the spy, right? The, or the, the spy chief. Uh, he's in charge of spy recruit. He was in charge of spy recruiting at the FBI. Yes. Like U.S. spy recruiting. Because, you know, we think we get spied on. Guess what? We send spies out. So what do they go to like job fairs? Uh, uh sort of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they put up a big sign spies needed. Uh a little bit, yeah. And and <laughs> so and so it's just kind of one of those things everybody knows but no one talks about. So it's like mm -hmm. an undercover job fair. But yeah, uh and some of them, you know what they'll do? They'll try to just uh come and knock on the door of the FBI and sell information. So they just come and knock and they say, "Yeah, I've got information." And what are they looking to get out of it? Money. So they're just looking for a payment. Yeah, like fifty, hundred thousand dollars just for. Okay. Yeah, I need some intel. I need to find some intel if I can sell it for that much. Oh, that's not a bad deal. Yeah, I know. I maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe worth it for me to go scour the internet and find some intel. That I, I can think sell. you should. I think you should yeah, do should that. Do. But um, so well, you know, I used to know a spy, right? Uh, yeah. Well, sort of. Didn't you, weren't they CIA? You had a CIA friend. Yeah, but we do not say those letters in conjunction like that. That was one of the things it's, that I picked it's, up it's from just, it. It's just Christians in action. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, what she would say, like if we were on the phone and the topic came up, she would refer to it as the company or the agency. Mm. Uh, she would never say those three letters uh -huh. on the phone, which, and of course she wouldn't tell me why, but you can kind of put together why that, you know, I imagine somebody somewhere will pick that up on like uh -huh. an alert uh -huh. system and then they start analyzing your phone calls. But, uh, but yeah, so she was um, with State Department for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, something like that. Oh, and wow. that's how you introduce yourself. Yourself. Yeah, I'm with State Department or I'm with an embassy somewhere. But mm -hmm. yeah, you know, that's uh, the, the agency itself is just a, uh, a sub department of State Department. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very top secret. Well, uh, we have uh, so so one thing before we get to Robin, because I know we had so, we have a mailbag. We do. Oh, that's right. I did check the mail and oh, I got a good one. Tracy. Oh, what? What? I must have missed that episode of 60 Minutes. What are you saying? Yeah, I know. I don't know what that quote is. <laughs> it was the Christmas movie quote that I was trying to get you to look up. And uh, and we got the answer here. I want to say thanks to Matthew in Bowling Green, Kentucky for writing in. Uh, we got the answer from a bunch of people, but uh, but I like his email here. He tells us all about his, uh, his family watching all these Christmas movies uh, every year. And Die Hard oh. is the name of the movie that is, of course, a staple of the Christmas movie catalog. It is not a Christmas movie. That's the problem. Just like It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas, Home Alone and Christmas Vacation. Not buying it. I love the quote, though. I love the I love. Thanks for sending it in. Uh, mm -hmm. And. It's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always played at Christmas, and it even has Christmas music in it. Oh, well, there you go. Well, you know, Bruce Willis is having trouble. What's he doing? He has brain, uh, something with his brain is wrong. He gave aphasia, brain. It's kind of like a brain tumor of sorts. And anyway, he had to retire just the other day. Oh, no kidding. How did I miss this? I don't know. 
I don't know. That's uh, crazy. But yeah, yeah. So that's that's a problem um, for all of us, really, because we're going to miss out on more uh, movies, such quality Christmas movies as Die Hard. Well, there's, you know, Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3. They put them on like marathon sessions right up there with Christmas Vacation and all the other vacations. So Vegas and European and all mm. that stuff. So there's no shortage of Bruce Willis uh, TV presence round about Christmas time. So we'll have plenty of Bruce to go okay. around. Well, I'm less worried, but I am more worried about spies. Mm, as you should yeah. be. Yeah. Well, and, why don't well, we go? Well you, well, you know what else I'm worried about is coffee. <clears throat> Oh, well, yeah. I mean, do we have any coffee at this point? Or we have uh, yeah, a consumed yeah. at all? We got some coffee. You know who sent us coffee? Nona. Who? We love Nona. <laughs> Nona. Nona's thank great. You, we Nona. we hear a lot from Nona and yeah. uh, and thank you so much for the uh for the uh, appreciation and of course the your emails are yeah. um very welcome as well. And you know, I had to respond to Nona uh, a little earlier because apparently I put my foot in my mouth on something which, you know, in my in my uh, efforts to try and spy, sound funny and smart and well, at least as smart as Tracy, I sometimes just put my foot in my mouth in big ways. And, and Nona likes to point that out for us. And she's well, absolutely right. Nona keeps us on target. That's why we love her. So, yes, she does. So, uh, but yes, we need to get to the, uh, oh, coffee, right? Um, if, if you would like to help support the show, all you got to do is buy us a coffee. It's a little way to make a donation about the amount of money that, that we'd spend on coffee. And sometimes we'll actually buy coffee and other times we'll just pay the bills for the show. So that is that link is in the show notes. So thank you so much. Uh, for all of your donations. Absolutely. And it does keep us well caffeinated. And uh, and that tends to keep me from making such big gaffes. I still make gaffes, but just not quite as big that way. <laughs> so thanks in advance for that. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to note is, um, Tracy, the feedback was given to me in another email that, uh, you know, they say, we, we always say, look down in the show notes for a link to the donation mm -hmm. bin. But they, they're like, what show notes? Because we're putting this up on so many different podcast platforms, not everybody has the same format, something along those lines. So maybe what we should look at for the future is some other way to communicate. Okay, you know, send your Venmo donations to such and such. Oh, maybe uh, we'll work on that. Yeah, so something to work on. Uh, and then something else that got tossed out at me. What was that? Uh so the same thing with our email. And uh, so we were just talking about the mailbag and, and some mm -hmm. of the notes that we get from people. And, you know, throw that out to the rest of you guys. If you want to get in touch with us, you just reach out and say hi or give us your thoughts on anything. We'd love to hear from you and everybody else. The email address to use is bodylanguagetracy at gmail.com. That's Tracy spelled with an I. So bodylanguagetracy at gmail.com. And, uh, and you can reach us there. We look forward to hearing from you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love it when people write in, as long as you're common sense and somewhat kind and keeping us in line. We like that. So uh, we got to get to the spies. Let's do that. And then uh, at some point, you and I need to talk about dog medication. We'll talk about that next time. Right now, it's spies. Sounds good. Spy it is. Okay, bye. It's Tracy. I am back again with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups, which almost didn't happen because of scheduling snafus, but we got uh, Robin Dreek with us, who is... Now, now tell me your exact title. Um, so I always call it founder and CEO of People Formula, and then I always throw in right now the retired chief of the FBI Counterintelligence Behavioral Analysis Program. So it's kind of all things behavioral regarding people. There you go.
Well, now I knew I couldn't get that out of my mouth as smooth as you just did. So <laughs> I say here, a lot. Here's the thing. Here's why we're in touch is because spies are all around us. A lot of them all the time. And and we think that like, like we think they're like, oh, Russian spies or, um, you know, from foreign places. But there's actually a really robust U.S. spy program and you're in charge of it, which I think is just is fascinating. Um a recruiting program for foreign nationals and uh and some of them even come knocking on the u.s door to sell information and i know you've had a couple of those experiences at least because because didn't you say like one piece of info can can go for like 20 to 50k is that true Yes-ish is the best way to say it. You know, it's kind of like in any industry. It depends on the value of the information at the time. Um, and, you know, so, I'm so you know, that referral, and, and actually it's probably going on right now. All I have is conjecture, you know. So, you know, about it, probably about six months ago, Ukraine wasn't on the, the forefront. Matter right. of, even when I was in the FBI, you know, I worked, you know, Ukraine wasn't on the forefront. And all of a sudden the orange revolution happens around 2005. And all of a sudden everyone wanted Ukraine sources of information. Mm -hmm. So that value went up. It's kind of like the used car market right now. And the car market, you know, when there's a great demand and little supply, that value goes up. And so right now the value of Ukraine intelligence, I guarantee you is spiked really high. Um, but, you know, who knows what will be a year from now. So same thing. So at the fall of the uh, Soviet empire, um, there's a lot of individuals that were looking to, you know, as I call them one hit wonders, you know, make a, make some cash off of some tidbits of information that would benefit the national security of the United States, you know? So yeah, sometimes, you know, but again, it really depended on the information, the access the individual had, you know, how valuable that information was to the U S intelligence community and our national security policymakers. And so, so I want to discourage anyone thinking they have one really great nugget of information or going to make a boatload of money. Um, probably not. You know, those are it's kind of like hitting lotto uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of times or, or the Antiques Roadshow yeah, <laughs> yeah, where yeah. people digging through their basement, looking through stuff that, you know, meanwhile, 99.9% .9 of the stuff is yeah pretty benign. <laughs> I wish I had a bit of information now. Me too. <laughs> I got nothing. That's why I do. That's why I still work. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you even know if it's if it's true? I mean, do you get? There has to be some kind of vetting process for that kind of thing. Sure. I, so it, it really, boy, everything. It's the worst answer ever. It really depends, you know. So uh -huh. if you, it depends on the position of the individual. Uh, and their access to information that is really compromising. So, you know, like someone that works inside a diplomatic establishment, the first thing you're going to ask for to vet, you know, how serious they are and whether mm -hmm. they're truthful is you, because there's a lot of information you know already. So you're going to ask them for, for information that, one, you know already, so you can vet the veracity of it. And then oh. also you're going to see what other things are going to give. So it's going to give that kind of extra weight. And so, you know, typical things you'll ask for is a directory. A directory of everyone that works inside a diplomatic establishment and who's who's who. In other words, who are the undercover operatives, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. intelligence operatives and who aren't. Meanwhile, a lot of that we know. So you can kind of vet how truthful they're being. And it's also extremely compromising information. So if someone is being played against you, uh -huh. they're not going to give up the jewels of the kingdom uh, like that. Wow. Um, yeah. So it, again, it really depends. And then if you have people just walking through the door, some average Joe claiming yeah. to be something, um, 
Yeah, you, 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 it's, you know, as I wrote in my last book, trust but verify. It's what Reagan did with the Russians, you know. Yeah. So, you know, you start on a presumption of trust and then you just vet the information, validate the information as well as the individual providing it. Now, how does this happen? Do they actually like come to the door of the FBI and knock on the door? Or like, is it, a, I mean, what really happens when that goes on? Everything. It, it, it's ranged um, like when I was when I did this in New York City, there were there were funny stories about how um, <laughs> the, the, the funniest, probably the funniest ones I ever heard was um, this was before I got there. So this is like the mid to late 80s, uh -huh. again, during the during the dissolution of the Soviet Empire there. And we, we literally had a Russian family um, that was a diplomat at the United Nations. And he wanted nothing more in the world than to defect and, you know, be a U.S. patriot. And so he, he thought there would be no better, you know, gesture to make than to load up his family that he left the residential complex in mm -hmm. a station wagon um, that was a diplomatic vehicle. They loaded everything they owned, their kids in the station wagon. And on the 4th of July, they drove to 26 Federal Plaza where the mm -hmm. FBI office is and yeah. volunteers. Who is working in the federal government on July 4th? Nobody. There you go. So he had to turn around, go home and try it again the next day. Um, oh, my God. So th those instances are rare that uh -huh. someone walks in the front door. What what people generally do is what we call uh, looking for the lighthouse or the safe tube. I mean, there's so many different ways you can create opportunities where you give yourself access to someone where they can kind of feel out whether this is a safe passage to the U.S. government, uh -huh. um, because a lot of times their own people will um, pr make provocations against them to kind of test loyalties. And oh. so they're they can be extremely scared uh, to do things like that. So um, you basically surround them with um, people that they could probably know that could get them to someone, you know, like me. Uh -huh. Um, so it, there's a myriad, I, I call it, it's like every day was buying a different lotto ticket. Every different individual is a different operation. All you're doing really is you're never trying to flip someone or convince someone to do something. All you're trying to do is identify which ones have a propensity to act in their own best interest, which all uh -huh. human beings do. And they believe their own best interest is to take care of their children's future, take care of education, their elder care parents, health care issues that they, they can't stand Putin because he's a, uh, you know, a new oligarch. You know, he's ruining their country. So all these types of things are priorities. All you're trying to do is identify which one of them has those priorities. And so you can kind of put yourself in front of them and tell them you have resources that can solve their challenges in terms of their priorities. You share with them your priorities to protect the national security of the United States and our allies. And then if you if that looks like it might be a good mix, then you actually then have to proceed. Can they trust you? You know, because they're literally going to put their lives and their family lives in your hands um, to trust you. And it becomes a, a partnership, really. Wow. Okay. So basically that's by recruiting. They, mm -hmm. they kind of signed up, but okay. It's also sales. <laughs> well, it, it is sales. So let's talk about how did you get to the head of the behavioral department at, at the FBI? I mean, that is cool sounding. Yeah. Failed. I failed at everything else. I wanted to be an astronaut. Oh. <laughs> I went to the, you know, so I went to the Naval Academy because mm -hmm. um, I want to be an astronaut. And um, you, you know, the funny thing is people think it's, you know, something you just kind of eased into because, you know, just have all these skills. No, literally, I it took me seven times to take the SATs to even uh -huh. get the minimum score required to get in the Naval Academy. Mm. 
I finally get in after an extra year. They put me in a prep school for a year. And then and then what fool allows a guy that had to take the SAT seven times to major in aerospace engineering? So I major in aerospace engineering. I failed out of that. Um, I want to be a Navy pilot. My eyes went to 2030 and back then they were uncorrectable. So and they put me on a boat for one summer. I hated that. Um, so I was like, hey, this Marine Corps thing looks pretty cool. I kind of got that high energy level. Um, so I go Marine Corps and I was getting out of the Marine Corps. I wanted to send my, my job in the Marine Corps. did not like it. My primary job. I, my time at Paris Island was fantastic as a series and company commander down there. Um, but they were going to send me to Okinawa. Um, I was out of the career path for progression for promotions. Mm-hmm. And an FBI guy came down to Paris Island as I was a Marine Corps captain considering getting out. And he gave a great pitch on the FBI. And I said, all right, I'll try that. I get, hmm. I said all my military time counts towards retirement, which was good. I had nine years nice. uh, towards retirement already. Yeah. And, uh, and I only had one other question for him. I said, what's the retirement rate? In other words, how many people, cause I had no idea what the job was. Right. Uh, um, and I, basically I was curious how many people come on board as agents and make it to retirement. Cause that would be a gauge for me. Do mm-hmm. they like it or not? And he goes 95 to 98% of the agents that come on board at that time, go to retirement. I said, all right, they must like the job must be pretty good. I applied. Uh, I get assigned to New York city, not my first choice. (laughs) Um, and while I was going through training rotation up there, which is about three months long, three to six months long before you get assigned your permanent squad. I was up at a firearms, my first firearms training in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a Marine Corps baseball hat on and I had two senior guys on either side of me on the firing line. They saw my Marine Corps baseball hat. One of them looks at me and goes, hey, you a former Marine? I go, yeah. And he goes, well, me too. He goes, what squad are you on? I go, I have no idea. I don't have one yet. And he goes, well, why don't you come to our squad? I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I'm a former Marine. I'm a Vietnam vet. I was at the Tet Offensive during Quezon. Yeah, Quezon during the Tet Offensive. Wow. I was like, wow, you're a hero. Um, and he goes, most people on our squad are former military. And we, our job is to work against the Russian military intelligence, the GRU. And I go, mm-hmm. what are you doing? He goes, oh, we try to recruit them. If we can't re- recruit them, we try to neutralize them and protect national security. And I go, I've never heard of that in my entire life. That yeah. sounds cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and uh, so I, I petitioned to get on a squad. I happened to have a vacancy at the same time. And I got on and I loved it. So there you go. That's how I got on. Oh, and so the behavioral program. So I get on a squad. I get better at this. Uh, I got over myself as much as I could. I got as I love interacting with people. I failed majestically many times, uh, but I had great teachers, mentors, and guides, as as most of us and all of us that are successful do. And I got better at it. Um, I had done a, an assessment for one of my cases, one of my spy recruitment cases, and I called in the behavioral analysis program. Basically, uh-huh. they come in and strategize the human engagement aspect of the operation. I was like, that's really cool. And a couple of years later, I applied and petitioned to get on that. And I got on as a team member in late 2001, early 2002. And I wound up taking over uh, the team in 2010 for a couple of years before I retired. Wow. Uh, I am so lengthy sucked- answer. I apologize. Well, I no, I'm so Robert. sucked into the story. I've just realized I have forgotten to take any notes for, <laughs> for ah, uh, <laughs> I'll take for, them for you. What do you want to know? <laughs> oh, no, for sure. No, no, it's all good. But like, that's how like compelled I am. So. So let's talk about uh, spy recruiting a little bit more. Like, like when they don't come knocking at the door on the 4th of July, what, um, because spies, like, I, I think we think, okay, spies are like, this is your job and you have a overcoat and a, and a hat and you sneak around with a magnifying glass. Right. And, and that's not really how it goes. It's like they have people, spies have regular jobs that are doing regular things and they just listen a little bit closer or like what, what really, like, 
how does it really go when when you're a spy for the U.S.? So uh, it's easier for me to just go because I work counterintelligence. My job okay. was was to 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 counter okay. the the spy networks that were trying to penetrate us. Okay, let's talk about um, that. Yeah. All right. So basically, what spies are doing is, and I, and, and there's two basic types of spies. I'll get those in a second. But what right. they're trying to do is they are working on behalf of a foreign state, right? You know, a, a foreign nation, and they are. They're here or anywhere in the world gathering information to fill intelligence information gaps that their country has. And most of those intelligence information gaps play into the social economic status of that country. You know, so okay. if they can save money in research in and a lot of people think it's it's stealing top secret, you know, military information. OK, but I'm telling you right now, I guarantee you when COVID broke out, one of the primary requirements for all the intelligence collectors out there was COVID research. It's been cancer research in the past. It's been really? shipping. Oh, yeah. And, and things just like, you know, predicting troop deployments, you know, that the U.S. is doing. So they're actually going to have people on the ground trying to figure out um, MREs, you know, meals ready to eat that the military uses. Are they increasing production? If they're increasing production, oh. where are they shipping them in the world? All this information goes into the foreign policy decisions that other countries are making. And so what they're doing is foreign nations, just like our nation does, you identify information gaps that you have, and then you task your intelligence force to go gather that information for Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what their job is. And usually extremely highly trained, multilingual, um, highly intelligent, um, and really good people, you know, 99% of the time. And so that's what their job is to fill intelligence gaps that other countries has in, in across a plethora of, of areas. And they use multiple vectors to do this. They'll use a symmetrical way to do it, where, and that is where um, their intelligence operatives are working under diplomatic cover at establishments across the United States and the world. So they'll work at consulates, missions to the United Nations, embassies. So they'll have a daily day job of being a diplomat. And so they are under diplomatic immunity if they're caught doing oh. um, espionage against a foreign nation. So you can't arrest them. You can't throw them in jail, um, but you can expel them. And so you, that's called the symmetrical threat. And so that's one type of operative. And then you have the non-official cover guys, the guys that are actually kind of like um, on my show, I've interviewed Jack Barsky. Um, his oh, book yeah. Is called, right. Jack Barsky. Yeah. Oh, sorry, mutual friend yeah, of ours. On our show. Yeah. What a guy. Right. So so yeah. he's another type of operative. It's called a deep undercover or a non-official cover guy, which is tasked uh-huh. by a foreign nation to act as a regular Joe in the world. Yeah. Um, the challenge with those individuals are is they're extremely hard to find and they take immense risk because they have no diplomatic community. Mm-hmm. If they're so most of the time they are are here on um, fraudulent documents. Yep. Um, and and that'll that alone will get them arrested and thrown in onto jail. And if they're found to be working on behalf of a foreign country, knowingly, especially if they're then taking classified retired proprietary information, then that ex, you know starts escalating the statutes that they're violating. So mm-hmm. you basically have two types. What? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah, there is there is no counterintelligence 101. Someone asked me that question once, and I, I my response typically was, "Where are you working?" Because it really depends on where you're working. Because then you have um, students that are sent by foreign nations into uh-huh. our, our our national labs, uh, into our universities to do research, um, bring that back to their countries. China's famous for doing that. Uh, uh-huh. Iran does a lot of that. Um, Russia will do that as well. They'll use um, different. 
uh, ethnic cultural centers across the country. Um, some of them will use churches and, and religious activities mm-hmm. to hide their activities. So it really is a it's broad. Um, and the amount of people collecting information against us compared to us collecting information against others, it's not even close. Just by an example, um, I mean, the amount of Russian symmetrical threats like known intelligence officers that are at diplomatic establishments. I mean, we're talking hundreds across the United States. Just hundreds. I thought it would be hundreds. more. No, hundreds. Okay. And and how, how many do we have abroad? Um, you know, the CIA never discloses, obviously, what they do. Well, but yeah. I'm telling you, you know, like, so going into, restri- you know, a highly restrictive area, like, you know, like Russia or China, we're talking a handful. Like, so it's, it's, so it's, yeah. It's a handful. It's a handful compared to hundreds. Wow. Okay. so I saw this in the Wall Street Journal today and there is uh, basically because there's all this as we talk, we don't know if Russia is going to invade Ukraine or what. uh, But I I think Putin has had his eye on Ukraine for a long time. So um, they said that the U.S. spies aren't doing a good job is what they said. It's in in the Wall Street Journal today. What's your comment on that? Like they said, there's just so many gaps and they can't figure out what Putin's really going to do. I mean, what does someone in your position have to say about something like that? Uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And the reason I say that is I, I'm very close to a few folks that, you know, in those positions. As a matter of fact, Dan Hoffman, uh, retired mm-hmm. CIA chief of station in Moscow. And 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 I do a voracious amount of reading myself. Um <laughs> Policymakers also don't always listen to their intelligence community. Right. So, so I don't know what we know or don't know, and I don't know who's listening or not listening. So it's it's a it's a tough question to really answer because, mm-hmm. um, it you know from an outward appearance, it appears that we are, are, it appears our foreign policy is in the tank when it comes to dealing with Russia. Yeah, um, totally. But it's always you know. Typically, the problem we've always had dealing with Russia is no one understands that you're not dealing with you know a Western country. You're dealing uh-huh. with a whole different culture. You're dealing with a whole different mindset when it comes to uh, individuals. Um, so yeah, you know, and so if you're going to take an academic approach when dealing with Putin, you're going to fail each time because he was he is just a big narcissist bully on the street, uh-huh. uh, and you don't you don't fight a bully with kindness. Right. Um, and or sanctions, either sanctions, you know, so Dan Hoffman does a great job explaining why sanctions don't mean anything to Putin, because he's got all his money tied up there in Gazprom and Rosabar on export. Uh-huh. And so it's really going to do nothing for him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. OK. OK. So then how? OK. <laughs> I have so many questions. Now, now let, let's talk about. Like, and I also got a caveat too. I'm not a geopolitical expert. I okay. am. I'm a. But I, I follow good people that are. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. That's that's all we need here. So, because I just follow people like you. So, um, spy recruiting 101. Let's talk about that. Um, okay. Because you're you're doing counterintelligence, and I mean, this is across the board, right? So you got students. You got. Um, it sounds like the people in the MRE factories, I mean, like, like, where do you start this? Like, how does this really go? And how do you talk someone kind of find the right candidate? Because you're, you're looking for behavioral signs, behavioral cues. And, you know, I'm, I'm a body language expert. You're looking for way more than that. I'm assuming. So what, can we get into some of that? Like maybe what the right profile is for the right person and how, you know, when to walk away and when to sign them up or what, like, how does that go? So 
you know, finding someone, obviously, you know, when you're selling a product that no one wants to buy, like American patriotism, and you have a very small potential client pool, like, like you know, foreign spies, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first challenge is, is like in any challenge, you have to identify who actually has challenges, needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations that align mm-hmm. to the resources that you have. Mm-hmm. You know, so the first first thing you do is you, you're looking for, you know, you know, verbal, nonverbal and behavior indicators that showing that someone may have a propensity to be pro West, pro US or anti theirs or disgruntled in some way with their current way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the, that's the first thing you're looking for. And that's not even entirely true. Also, only because I only say that because I have literally worked with defector sources that we didn't even try recruiting because they came across from the outward appearance that they were such staunch Russian communist supporters that there's never in a million way, ways, way, um, million years they'd ever cooperate with the U.S. government. Meanwhile, um, that's all they were trying to do. So, so you're looking for outward appearance. That's one thing. But at the same time, all their people are looking for outward appearance as well. What you want to really do is kind of try to get down to that one or two degrees of separation from what the outer world sees. And so if you can identify some some personal contacts they have in their lives, some people they've opened up to a little bit, some people they're, they're showing their true self to, you know, where they can kind of let their guard down and they feel safe. They have trust with someone uh-huh. that they can open up about what their intentions in life are, their dreams, goals, and aspirations for them and their families. And now if you're hearing some inklings in there that they're, they're looking for something different than their current path is bringing them on, that's someone who might be a candidate. And then if you can identify that they might be willing to take a risk, um, maybe have a conversation where they can kind of assess for themselves whether this might be a path that they're willing to walk down. Because basically, if someone's going to do this, it's already in their mind to do it. They just have to find something that makes them feel psychologically safe in which to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your job is to figure out which one of them might have that inkling. So, so are you interviewing people around them or is is that what we're getting at here? Yep. You do that. Um, You're listening, you know, if you do, you know, any kind of technical coverage of them, um, you're looking at um, things they're doing, hobbies they have, social activities they have, likes, interests, dream. I mean, every, you're looking at any kind of vector into their lives you possibly can to one, get an inkling into who might be thinking this way. And the other was to get access points because the greatest challenge you have is, you know, is by treaty and by uh, law, it's illegal for me to, to initiate contact with a diplomat like this. And so I can't, basically I can't cold call. I can't, I can't pick up the phone or, or, or walk up to someone and say, Hey, Hey, Ivan, I happen to be an FBI guy. And I happen to know that you might be having an interest and maybe having a conversation and dialogue about maybe options and opportunities in your future. It's Uh completely legal for me to do that. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, (laughs) so then how, what happened? How do they, how do you end up talking to them? If they take the initiative, that's okay. <laughs> if you if you lay out a, uh, a a scenario where a friend of theirs, one of these trusted contacts, says, "Hey, I might have someone you might want to talk to. His name's Robin. I'm not quite sure what he does. He might have some affiliation with the government. Maybe is that someone you might be interested in talking to? If so, I might be able to set something up for you. That's how you do it. So you talk to their friends and get their friends. So this is." there's a ton of research that goes into this before 
Yeah. So uh, th- these are long drawn out operations. Wow. This is not, this is not just, Hey, do you want a million dollars and spy for, for us, you know, be a double right. agent. I mean, it's not the way it works. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about the double agent thing because with the, um, with the diplomats and things like that, like, the, I mean, there's movies about that. How, how does that really go? Uh, um, uh, do people really pull that off? Movies are so full of it most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> even on condensed timelines that they put them on for entertainment, um, yeah. what they do is so far off. You know, even like I get asked a lot about Netflix's, and I know uh, our friend Jack Barsky does too about the the Americans on Netflix. That is so far off. Oh, <laughs> I mean, is it? There, there, there's some tinges of reality in there, uh-huh. um, but yeah, it falls apart. You know, um, pretty quick. Pretty quick. Um, yeah, it's again, it's it's a you know the working in the world of counterintelligence and spy recruiting or countering spies is uh-huh. a lot different than working criminal matters. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a different mindset. It's a uh, there's no unsubs. You know, very rarely do you have an you know a subject you don't know. You know, so like the profilers inside the FBI and law enforcement, they're they're using great research and practical experience to identify individuals that have committed a crime that they don't know who those indiv- individuals are. That's why they're called profilers. Uh-huh. My behavioral unit. We always knew who we were going to talk to. So we're strategizing human engagements with known people. Uh-huh. And generally, we're work- working within the normal parameters of human behavior. So when it comes to nonverbals and everything like that, we're dealing with pretty normal people. Um, so everything's so all that we're always looking for, kind of bringing it back to the behavior side for you, is we're looking, at least I am, a lot of for a lot of congruence. I'm looking for congruence between words, actions, and deeds. Uh-huh looking for high comfort nonverbal displays when they're sharing information with me. So they have a high comfort. So most likely we have veracity going uh-huh. you know, as opposed to stress uh, indicators. And so it, it plays a part of it, but the big thing is signs of trust. Signs. Wow. Okay. Cause, cause on your team, well, we have a mutual friend and he, you know, him a lot better than me, but um, Joe Navarro. Yeah. Uh, who is really the best in the business, I think, yeah, with, absolutely uh, of body language experts. And so would you just kind of bring him along on these interviews of the friends and neighbors of these <laughs> connections or that you're trying to make? Or how does how does that so, really go down? So Joe, Joe did my initial training when I came on the behavioral team. That's where we met. Um, okay. I think it was back in 2001, 2002, when Joe and I first met. Uh, he retired uh, a couple of years after that. So I didn't, I didn't personally work with Joe inside the bureau a whole lot. Okay. Um, so the way we would do it, if you did have someone and there's not a huge amount of people that are nonverbal experts, I started out as a disciple of Joe's. You know, so I really got into yeah. nonverbals, tip of the head to the tip of the toes, the hundreds of you know macro and yeah. micro expressions you're seeing. The challenge I found, though, it was really effective for Joe because Joe did a lot of one on one interviews and mm-hmm. interrogations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is great indicators, especially if you have two people, because, as you know, as an expert, you know, to, to listen to words and watch body language. Can't do it. The same, no, you can't. It's mm-hmm. totally impossible. I've, I've never met anyone that can do it. And the fact that you jumped right on there and validated it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we always use two people. If you have someone that's going to watch nonverbals mm-hmm. and then someone's going to pay attention to words. So it's the nonverbal person could, indi- you know, take a note when someone's spiking with stress so we can go back and explore what causes stress. Yep. Um, and so Joe was great at doing that. He is the best in the world, but in my world, so Joe was all about doing a lot of interviews. My side of what I was doing because of where I was stationed, what I was doing in New York was I was doing a lot of recruiting of confidential human sources. And so I found I had to get off of paying attention to nothing but nonverbals. And I had to really, really listen and pay attention to language more. And so my nonverbals I was going for was right here. 
you know, <laughs> chest, chest ahead, because this is where my eyes were. This is what I can focus on. So I'm literally looking for the macro um, signs of comfort as I'm conversing. And if I saw stress, you know, I would always take ownership, you know, thinking I did something to induce the stress. I brought up either a topic, something I said, my mannerisms, my tempo, you know, what am I doing to induce stress? So I could always adjust uh, that way. Oh, now that's pretty interesting. Now let's, let's roll into um, how you're using that now because you're out speaking and now, cause you're still working law enforcement. Is that correct? Some, you know, oh. I, I just came back from LA, you know, I, I do a lot of law enforcement stuff, but I, I work with companies and corporations across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I'd probably say law enforcement's probably about 10 to 20% of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything else is, uh, corporate America. Yeah. You're out speaking and you, and you've written some books. So let's talk about that and what you're doing out there in the, in the business world. So is it just keynotes you getting in? Uh, well, for one, what are your keynotes about? And then how are you following up with that and really creating? Yeah, so the keynotes I do are always basically around um, my code of trust, which is the five steps I have to building sincere organic trust mm-hmm. and, and communicating in a way to make connections. Um, and then, you know, I sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll shift it into the six signs of predicting behavior, which is because my whole thing is creating good, healthy, strong relationships through mm-hmm. actionable things. So my keynotes are all, you know, a lot of self-deprecating humor because I always say my three books are my three manuals on how to be the power narcissist I was born to be. I really had to get over myself in order to be much more effective. Uh-huh. I had great mentors and guides that modeled great behavior that I dissected and made their art form a paint by number. Um, so that's what I'm doing when I'm doing keynotes. I do do one-on-one trainings. I do coaching. Like most of the time when I'm doing my coaching, I'm, I'm what I call the loving critic because I'm extremely objective, but I'm not emotionally tied to your outcome. And uh-huh. so I can listen to the behaviors you're doing. Um, and I can listen to the interactions you're having that you're describing to me with other human beings. And I'd say 99.9% of the time, I ask a lot of discovery questions, which forces an individual to own their own behavior. Cause that's mm-hmm. the only thing you can control. Um, because I always approach a situation was if you're having a challenge with another human being, you did something to cause it. What did you do? Now, I'm not saying their 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 reaction is inappropriate or or healthy, but you literally did something to cause them to flare up on you. So mm-hmm. I'm always going to explore your behavior first and what we can do to mitigate that because most of our our own behaviors cause for our own insecurities. Um, and so I'm gonna I always focus in on that first, and then we'll focus on how that impacts people around you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And then you got books too. What are your books? Let's hear it. Yeah. So uh, first, first self-published book, it's called, it's not all about me, the top 10 techniques to quick report with anyone. Um, not about yeah, me? It, yeah. It's not about me. Uh, <laughs> literally I, I, I worked with a, a great behaviorist as well. And she said, Robin, you're literally the only person that could write that book because it is all about you. You think uh, so? Yep. So that's my first manual. Um, it's a quick read, um, take you a couple hours. I self-published it and it's still my bestseller. I've sold over a hundred thousand copies of that thing. Nice. Self-publishing, <laughs> man. That's the way to do it. I tell you. It's uh, it's literally this one. It's, uh, it's, it's short. It's sweet. Um, yeah, I like and it. uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a quick read. It's the only one my wife has actually read. Um, <laughs> my next one's a code of trust. Um, that was with St. Martin's press. I did that one. Um, that's the five steps to building good, honest trust mm-hmm. and rapport. My last one was sizing people up. That's six signs of predicting the behavior of others, basically for race, relationship development and maintenance. Wow. Oh, do you have, you have like two tips out of that, uh, out of the six? 
Yeah. So um, I probably for all my books and I actually highlighted it as one of the six signs is um, because people are saying, how do I rapidly assess whether I can trust someone? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to do these ones. Uh, The first one is language. Mm -hmm. Um, So if someone's using my four pillars of great communication language with you, that's a great sign. Number one, they're seeking your thoughts and opinions instead of sharing theirs. Two, they're talking in terms of your priorities and challenges instead of their own. Three, they're validating you without judgment. They're non-judgmentally curious about you. And four, they're empowering you with choices. When they're doing those four things with good uh, comfort nonverbals, this is most likely a good, healthy relationship that's starting off. And then the sixth sign is emotional stability. When they're displaying good, strong emotional stability with doing great language and nonverbal congruence, there's mostly good signs going on right there. Oh, I like it. Oh, I like it. All right. So, Robin, how can people get a hold of you? Really simple. Peopleformula.com. All one word. Peopleformula.com. Um, I have lots of content on there. You can scale it up from all my freebie stuff, um, including my new podcast, my my YouTube channel, uh, lots of articles and postings I do all the way up to paying me lots of money for as a, key, as a keynote or a coach, whatever you want. I'm good. There you go. Oh, what's your <laughs> podcast? Tell us your podcast name. Yeah. So literally just launched. It's uh, Forged by Trust. Oh, um, I like it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Forged by Trust. It's it's uh, literally I have one episode that I just uploaded yesterday. It's uh, actually the one with me and Joe Navarro uh, oh, talking, cool. about his, talking about his book, Be Exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, Forged by Trust leaders, um, leaders, partners and winners. So there you go. Perfect. I love it. Well, hey, thanks for taking a minute here with us on Truth, Lies and Cover Up. You are just fantastic. And uh, we got to have you back sometime. Absolutely. We got tons more to talk about, Tracy. Appreciate it. All right. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.